0: Hello, I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. A coalition of policy organizations, grassroots groups, individuals, and activists from West Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and Ohio have been working together for the past several years to develop a framework for rebuilding Appalachia. They call their effort Reimagine Appalachia, and their blueprint outlines a vision for vibrant Appalachian communities where everyone is paid enough to support themselves and their family, future generations can put down roots, and everyone has clean air to breathe and water to drink. On this edition of Making Connections News, we feature presentations from an online convening held by the Coalition in March to gather ideas for building a 21st century sustainable regional economy, followed by presentations at a July 21st press conference announcing the Reimagine Appalachia policy blueprint and calling for large-scale federal investment in the region. We begin with Ted Bettner, Executive Director of the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy. He spoke at the March 26th convening about the resource curse that has plagued the region for more than a century. He's followed by Stephen Herzenberg, executive director of the Keystone Research Center in Pennsylvania. Steve gives an historical overview of the federal government's programs known as the New Deal and how that investment helped Appalachians recover from the Great Depression in the 1930s.
1: I'd like to go over briefly the economic and political implications in Appalachia, and why regions such as West Virginia and the Appalachian, Central Appalachian region itself uh, uh, remain so poor despite uh, its vast rich natural resources. Uh, one of them is Appalachia has long been dependent on extractive industries, especially for a source of good jobs. And uh, the region has long suffered from what some refer to as the resource curse, Our region has also provided the raw materials for other regions uh, around this country and around the world that has fueled prosperity, but left our areas poorer. Uh, Some refer to that as sacrifice zones, Uh, but one of the best uh, descriptions I've ever heard of it is from uh, Ron Eller, who wrote a book called Miners, Millhands and Mountaineers uh, several years ago, and he characterized the place as a place with growth without development Uh, And I think when you look around, especially in a state like West Virginia, where the whole Appalachian region uh, is part of West Virginia, uh, that rings very much true, uh, given the lack of uh, just overall broad development and economic diversity. Uh, So, you know, uh, our region has been through boom and bust periods uh, and it often gets left behind in a lot of discussions and that's part of the reason we're here today. Uh, so one of the reasons is, you know, what is holding back the region? Uh, one is the, the, the region's really rugged topography. Another is inadequate infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the areas, especially in Eastern Kentucky and parts of West Virginia and Ohio, uh, less so in the Pittsburgh area, but have a very low population density. Uh, so that's another reason. It's also a region that's in very poor health, has low education attainment. Uh, and those are some of the factors, but one of the largest factors has to do with the, uh, resource curse. Uh, But according to the National Resource Governance Institute, uh, the resource curse refers to the failure of many resource rich countries to benefit truly from the natural resource wealth and for governments in these countries to respond effectively to public welfare needs. Uh, This thesis holds that uh, places uh, that are rich in natural resources, that are non-renewable, and, you know, wealth are prone to social conflict, poor governance, Lasting environmental damage, economic instability. Uh, other scholars have defined the resource curse simply as a situation where the abundance of natural resources actually leads to slower economic growth. That over the last two decades, it's, there's been a number of studies that have attempted to look at the effect of the natural resor- of natural resource based economies on state economic performance. Uh, while there is some disagreement in the literature, overall, most of the uh, literature finds that uh, generally they find a negative relationship, especially in the long run between economic performance and heavy reliance on natural resource extraction. And this chart that you see, these uh, three little bubbles with the uh, uh, arrows pointing, uh, show that sort of boom and bust of the natural resource based economy. What happens is you end up getting an economy that has high wage jobs, but low skilled jobs, and you end up with a lack of human capital Another name for that is also not having an educated workforce and you end up having an undiversified economy that in the long run leads to poor growth. But this vicious cycle is where high wage and low skilled jobs create a disincentive to invest in innovation, higher education, advanced job skills, and other industries that result in a less uh, diversified economy. Um, And as less diversified economies, mean also less economic stability, which in turn can mean a harder landing from the booms and busts of natural resource-based economies. We're seeing that today with the huge drop in uh, oil prices, and that'll affect severance taxes, can affect local property taxes, uh, all sorts of things can happen uh, from basing your economy on a commodity, uh, like oil, gas, or coal. Uh, And that instability and inability to make our regions work for us, and the deindustrialization of the region of the last 40 years, Especially in rural areas, has also led to a political environment uh, that we have witnessed that is sort of uh, of mass disillusion uh, with the process. Uh, West Virginia, in particular,ly has the uh, some of the lowest statewide uh, voter turnout in the entire country, because uh, people are feel alienated not just from their jobs and uh, well-being, but from the political process and that there's an erosion of uh, the American dream, that people see us having a rigged economy. And so there's been a willingness and desire to turn inward and sort of break the system. I think we saw that uh, in the 2016 election for sure. Uh, And we're continuing to see that uh, in West Virginia. So it makes it very difficult, uh, you know, uh, people feel with good reason that the economy is just rigged against them and that there has been an unwillingness to turn, there's been a willingness to turn inward and deal with that. And the pain in politics of the area along with the rural areas across the country has been highlighted in a slew of books, uh, you know, including Deer Hunting with Jesus, which is more of a comical one, that's pretty funny. Uh, And most recently, uh, 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 Jennifer Selva's book, Uh, We're Still There, which I highly recommend. Uh, But despite the recent decline in coal production and the hollowing out of many communities, the region, and especially in Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky, they still depend on fossil fuel production heavily, and we still have very heavily uh, dependent economies on carbon. Um, West Virginia has one of the most dependent uh, economies on carbon. Uh, Kentucky's second, Ohio's a little less, and Pennsylvania's a little less, but all four of these states are above the national average. And when we look at workers in the fossil fuel industry, uh, people that are in fossil fuel production or ancillary industries, you can see the number of jobs is uh, well over 100,000 for the uh, just the for state area. Uh, so, when we're talking about transitioning to a green economy, it's important to take a look at uh, what where things currently are as well. Uh, finally, as we move forward and we look, uh, this is a famous quote from uh, Robert C. Byrd that was printed in the Hill uh, right before he passed away. Uh, but I think it's really important one to look at uh, that we can't bury our head in the sand and that we have to embrace that future if we're going to uh, move to a more or less carbon intensive economy. Uh, And most important part is we want to make sure that uh, we're at the table and and so we won't be on the menu. Uh, So uh, those are just really important. Uh, So now I'll turn it over to Steve uh, to talk about how the new deal had a remarkable impact on our region and economy that not only transformed it for the better, but also shaped our politics that supported the essential role of the public good. And, and we'll talk about the uh, plight of working families and those living in deep poverty
2: since uh, we've lost that New Deal consensus. And uh, yeah, I'll just turn it over, Steve. Thank you so much. These are fluid times. It feels like it is October 1929 and September 2008, and the three years from 1929 to 1932 all at once. These are warp speed times. If we can stay ahead of the curve, we have a chance to make a big leap forward towards a better future around which all in the Ohio River Valley can rally. Many of us spend a lot of time worrying about division. But when it comes to our values and when it comes to the kind of world we want, I am impressed most by the degree of unity. Working families and those worried about climate change want an economy with opportunity for all that also nourishes rather than destroys our planet. Women and men and people of every you and ethnicity want hard work to be rewarded again. And a way to contribute to the greater good while also putting food on the table and a roof over their head. Young and old want our communities and our region to thrive and our forest and farmlands, the places people walk, bike, hunt, run, kayak, and find love within and across generations, the places called home to blossom anew with hope and promise, not suffer from despair and decline. People of every stripe want to claim us never before their democratic birthright to shape the future we all want, and to end the tired tradition of distant corporations and one-percenters stealing political power for their narrow, selfish, and sometimes hateful ends. We are as one when it comes to the world we want. The hard part is getting there. The original New Deal offers us powerful lessons for getting there, lessons suddenly more resonant as we confront an economy plunging even faster than in 1929. The first lesson is is that this crisis opens the door wide to getting our policy priorities right. What matters suddenly is people and pragmatism. It is refreshing to hear emphasis on getting help to people on the front lines, those suffering most because of a collapse that is a system failure. People today are seeing individual struggles as stemming from factors beyond our control, not as a lack of moral fiber. We're suddenly less apt to blame the victim. When it comes to pragmatism, suddenly everyone, on a bipartisan basis, is more FDR than Herbert Hoover. As it was during FDR's famous experimentalism of the 1930s, the litmus test is what works. Deficits and austerity, what are those? Let the market self-correct. Are you kidding me? Let's hold on to putting people first and to pragmatism, not ideology, focusing on what works after this crisis as well as during it. Our region needs policies that work for all for the long term, not policies limited to what Ronald Reagan might have espoused. A focus on people and pragmatism characterized four New Deal policies that ended the inequality of the 1920s and underpinned the shared prosperity of the 1940s to the 1970s. We passed unemployment insurance to help specific people so that jobless workers had some income, and because it would work, it would increase purchasing power and lift us out of the Great Depression. We enacted Social Security because it would help specific people so that seniors without jobs had some income and because it would work, it would increase purchasing power and lift us out of the Great Depression. We passed the National Labor Relations Act making real the right of factory workers to form unions and established a federal minimum wage to help specific people so that manufacturing workers could bargain for and low-wage workers also receive a share of the benefits of productivity growth. And because they would work, they would lead to decades of wage-driven growth. The impact of the New Deal was most dramatic in the poorer parts of our nation, including Kentucky and West Virginia. From 1940 to 1978, incomes rose for families rich, middle-class, and poor. The average income of the bottom 90% in our four states roughly tripled or quadrupled. The New Deal particularly benefited rural areas. In in an echo of recent experience, rural America before 1930 lagged urban, where mass manufacturing and electric power advanced hand in hand. Rural areas also suffered because deforestation by lumber barons followed by farming of marginal acres accelerated erosion. Conservationists such as Pennsylvania's Gifford Pinchot saw that electrification could raise rural living standards and allow these areas to share in manufacturing job growth while relieving pressure on the land the new deal turned the dream of rural electrification into a reality through the rural electrification act and administration and the growth of electrical cooperatives these were a tremendous success within 20 years 65 percent of farmers had a telephone and 96 percent of them had electricity still today electrical Cooperatives serve 42 million people. As Jim Lyons of the National Wildlife Federation has written, another New Deal legacy is the Civilian Conservation Corps. Over 10 years, starting in 1933, Roosevelt's tree army employed 3 million people, planted over 3 billion acres, restored 80 million acres of farmland, and about 4,000 historic structures, and much, much more. Imagine what CCC 2.0, do today for our working lands and to sequester carbon and mitigate climate impacts the new new deal decades from the 1930s to the 1970s were not perfect they were a time of cold war and conformity federally propagated housing segregation greater prosperity for white men than for black or for women the army Corps engineer utilities and construction companies driving some new deal projects such as large dams failed to secure local input, undercutting communities and damaging the environment. Deep pockets of poverty remained. The rising tide over four decades did not lift all the small boats in the hullers of central Appalachia. In these respects, a Green New Deal shaped by the people of our region can do better. The New Deal was, however, better than than the trajectory that followed its collapse after 1980, with unions disappearing, the minimum wage falling, unemployment benefits shrinking, and manufacturing dropping to less than one in 10 jobs, inequality surged. Wages for the 50% and then for the 90% stopped growing. After tripling or better in the prior 40 decades, they fell in the four decades after 1977 in West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and southwestern Pennsylvania. A growing faction of men dropped out of the labor force. Economic decline brought anger and political alienation and fueled division. What I said at the outset remains true. The overwhelming majority of Appalachians share basic values and a similar vision. Their common enemies are the forces that deliberately crushed New Deal policies and seek to go backwards to 19th century U.S. capitalism, not forwards to 21st century. DuPont and other large industrial companies that founded the Business Roundtable and spent 50 years trying to crush building trades unions. Fossil fuel companies and the Koch brothers, Lewis Powell, later Supreme Court Justice, who authored the 1971 memo that sparked the creation of conservative think tanks and the American Legislative Exchange Council. Works that fight tooth and nail to destroy unions, impoverish workers, allow corporations to despoil our environment, poison our waters and our workers, and and sell the vulnerable subcrime mortgages and opioids. These folks want to lock in oligarchy and an economy that works only for the 1%. They play for keeps, and they have been particularly strong in central Appalachia. But here's the thing. There are more of us than them. They may have overreached, and the current climate and economic crisis make plainer than ever that their prescriptions are a disaster, even, as it turns out, for them and their grandchildren. Our opportunity today is to use the historical precedent of the New Deal and the covid 19 and climate crises to realize a pragmatic vision that puts both people and the planet first. We don't have to choose. We can create an economy that people look forward to with optimism instead of despair, one that gives everyone in Appalachia dignity and purpose. We can create policies and programs that provide enough good jobs, including many that directly help avert climate disaster. Central Central Appalachia needs this renewal even more than other places and through grassroots efforts such as this convening, Central Appalachia can build a blueprint and a movement that turns renewal from a vision to a reality. Thank you.
0: That was Steven Herzenberg from the Keystone Research Center in Pennsylvania. Up next is the July 21st press conference held to release the Reimagined Appalachia Blueprint.
3: Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Hello. Welcome. I'm Caitlin Johnson. I'm the communications director with policy matters ohio and we are here today to unveil the reimagine appalachia policy blueprint and i'm going to be moderating the press call today reimagine appalachia is a coalition of labor policy experts and community leaders who are making sure that no matter what we look like or the size of our bank account everyone who lives in appalachia can have a good job is cared for it can put down roots for the future Today, as Appalachians, like all Americans, face a global pandemic and the recession it's causing, we have an opportunity to chart a new future. Right now, Congress is debating major funding packages that can create jobs, rebuild infrastructure, and address fires and floods caused by damage to our climate. We have come together from Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania to demand those plans prioritize Appalachian communities. Today, we are releasing a policy blueprint that has been endorsed by 59 organizations and counting. You can see a full list of endorsers on our website, reimagineappalachia.org, and that is where you can find the blueprint as well. The blueprint builds on years of research, outreach, and community engagement. It's an Appalachian document created by and for Appalachian people. It shows federal policymakers the way forward to create a vibrant, thriving region for everyone who lives there. No exceptions. So here's our lineup. First, we'll hear from Hannah Halbert. She's the Executive Director of Policy Matters Ohio and is a member of the Reimagine Appalachia Planning Committee. She'll discuss how the policies we're putting forward can rebuild Appalachia's economy, especially in light of the pandemic recession. Then we'll hear from another Planning Committee member and also Policy Matters Senior Researcher, Amanda Woodrum. She'll walk us through the blueprint. West Virginia Rivers Executive Director and Planning Committee member Angie Rosser will discuss the potential to build upon the region's natural infrastructure. And Quinton King, criminal justice policy analyst at the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, also a member of the Planning Committee, will talk about how the policies in the blueprint would protect the well-being of all Appalachians. Steve Herzenberg, another Planning Committee member and Executive Director of the Keystone Research Center, We'll describe how the blueprint would make sure all Appalachians share in the prosperity their resources help create. And finally, we'll hear from Ashley Spaulding. She's the research director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. And she'll end the program by calling on our federal leaders to incorporate the policies we laid out into the recovery packages they are debating. So we're going to go through the entire program and then open the floor for questions from the press. Please either raise your hand and I will unmute you so you can ask your question or just type it in the Q&A and I will read it. And if you're watching on Facebook Live and have a question, type it into the comments and we'll try to get to it or we can answer it after the program. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Hannah.
4: All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Caitlin, for kicking this off. Uh, I'm Hannah. I'm the executive director at Policy Matters Ohio. Uh, and, uh, you know, really, we're here today to talk about the reimagined Appalachia blueprint to create a 21st century Appalachian economy. While we're talking about the policies to get us there, it's important to remember that the economy really does come down to people working, buying, and selling stuff, right? People are the economy, and what's good for people is good for the economy. Right now, our nation is facing unprecedented challenges with the COVID epidemic, a deep economic downturn, extreme inequality, racism, police brutality, and the consequences of a changing climate. We're seeing right now what happens when powerful corporations use their wealth and influence to direct our public resources into their pockets through tax breaks and tax cuts deprives our communities of, of, of important things, important things like public health infrastructure that we need to stay safe and healthy now and tomorrow. Without enough public investment and resources to get through this difficult time, Appalachia, like many other parts of the nation, is struggling. Despite some improvement last Friday's state jobs report for June, Showed that our four-state region has lost more than one out of every ten jobs since February, and extraction industries are not immune to the downturn and have not been a major source of employment for Ohioans. The most recent data show that about ten thousand jobs in Ohio are in mining and logging, and those jobs have declined nearly sixteen percent over the year. Data from the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services show that. Most of the projected job growth in Southeast Ohio, like most of the projected job growth in Ohio, will be in service sector jobs. A snapshot of the job ads posted to Ohio's jobs board uh, shows a little more than 8,000 job openings between April and May of this year. The top employer seeking workers was the Dollar General. Southeast Ohio, the Ohio River Valley, and too many people and families across our four states never recovered from the last recession. In 2017, during the longest period of economic expansion in our nation's history, the poverty rate in Appalachian, Ohio was 17.2%, 17.8% in Appalachian, West Virginia, 13.4%. in Appalachia, Pennsylvania, and 25.6 in Appalachian, Kentucky. This time has to be different. This time policymakers at all levels must include the people of Appalachia in our national recovery. These crises demand from leaders real lasting and structural change. And it's not a matter of if, but when. When our leaders in the nation finally rise to the occasion, people in Appalachia need to be at the table. It's time for an economy that's good for working people, for communities, our health, and the health of our neighbors. One that relies on working people who are already skilled in service, industry, trades, and farming. One that offers hope to the next generation of workers and one that does not discriminate. And one that does our part to meet the climate challenge, just as we met the call to provide coal energy to fuel a growing nation a century ago. These are the goals of this project, a conversation, a framework, and more than anything, a call for a new way. Thank you so much for spending part of your morning with us and joining in this conversation.
3: Thank you, Hannah. Right, next, I'm going to turn it over to Amanda Woodrum. Whether it's one year or five
5: years from now, national climate change legislation will happen. And the worse the economy gets, the more likely it will come in the form of an economic stimulus package. And we need to see it as an opportunity to bring much needed resources into the region. And this is why Policy Matters Ohio and our sister organizations in West West Virginia, Kentucky and Pennsylvania along with key partners and community leaders in the region came together. We came together to identify the basic elements of a new deal that works for us. The framework we are unveiling today creates a vision for a 21st century sustainable Appalachia and it identifies the federal resources needed to get us from where we are to where we need to go. To be clear, this is not about retraining and relocating our skilled workforce for jobs they don't want in places they don't want to go to. In fact, we need coal miners and coal plant workers, as well as those working in oil and gas industries to help us to help us build the Appalachia that we want to live in. Our vision creates a federal jobs program that can put people back to work in largely outdoor jobs while simultaneously helping us to address the climate crisis and the need for racial justice while also maximizing the creation of good union jobs. We deserve nothing less. As most people know, Appalachia is rich in natural resources of all kinds. Appalachia should be, by all means, the richest region in the world, but it's not. In fact, it's one of the poorest. Many of our communities rank in the bottom 10% of all communities nationwide for the high rates of poverty and unemployment and low wages. This was true 20 years ago and it remains true now. And the situation has only been exacerbated exacerbated by the COVID epidemic. For too long Appalachia has provided the raw materials for the prosperity of absentee corporations located elsewhere, while Appalachians have been left behind in poverty. Our land scarred, our workers and neighbors sick particularly our black and indigenous neighbors. National climate change legislation, if done right, could be an opportunity to reverse course. We believe, number one, Appalachians deserve a disproportionate share of any federal resources devoted towards addressing climate change. Number two, those resources need to come with strings attached. They must be designed in a way that maximizes the creation of good union jobs, ensures co-workers are provided genuine opportunities to do this work, and requires the future of our workforce to be more diverse and inclusive going forward. The nature of these public investments, specifically public infrastructure investments, Start with work modernizing the grid in Appalachia, which is in serious need of an upgrade. It needs to be better able to weather severe storms, and we also need to decentralize the production of electricity. Our current form of centralized generation wastes more energy and generation and transmission than actually reaches the end user. We also need to infuse the electric grid with broadband to make it a smart grid. And you cannot have a 21st century economy unless everyone has access to affordable internet for school, healthcare, and work. Something that has only become increasingly clear in the last few months. Our plan also grows manufacturing in Appalachia by making it cleaner and more energy efficient. This work includes repurposing shuttered coal-fired power plants. One of the ways coal-fired power plants can be repurposed repurposed is to turn them into eco-industrial parks, where one company's waste is treated as the raw material for another company. This is referred to as circular manufacturing. Turbines and boilers previously uh, uh, equipped or already equipped at coal plants can be repurposed uh, to provide the heat and power of manufacturers when they are co-located in the same place. These locations Coal-fired power plants also have good transportation infrastructure, including water and rail. Eco-industrial parts can help put Appalachia on the map. We're becoming a global hub for alternatives to single-use plastic. Our region has long been global uh, leaders in the plastics industry. We should also be on the forefront of the next generation of plastic. And that's plastic alternatives, which can be made from products grown right here in the region. We also need to make our sustainable transportation make our transportation system more sustainable. That means work upgrading rail, laying new rail, building out electric vehicle infrastructure, expanding public transit, and securing our future in the electric vehicle supply chain. Those three sectors represent 90% of our region's carbon emissions. Aggressive strategies to modernize the grid, make transportation sustainable, and grow cleaner and more efficient, manufacturing will go a long way towards making Appalachia carbon neutral. Our framework does this, though, in a way that works for us. It is also important to understand, we don't have to eliminate every single carbon emission to achieve net zero carbon. Appalachia is rich in natural carbon absorbing resources. Trees absorb carbon. Reviving the Civilian Conservation Corps to reforest the region, restore our wetlands, and support local farmers engaging in regenerative agriculture rather than big ag and their land degrading practices can also play a significant role. This is part of the solution to repair the damage done from the last century. Damage left behind from absentee corporations in the extractive industries, but we also need federal resources to clean up their brownfields like coal ash ponds at shuttered power plants, reclaim abandoned mines, and cap orphaned oil and gas wells. Finally, even in a sustainable Appalachia, most jobs will still be in traditionally low-wage sectors. For these folks, we need to expand union rights, increase the federal minimum wage, provide universal health and child care, and make sure that all jobs become good jobs. The bottom line. We are creating a vision where everyone has a place. There's a place for our co-workers, a place for our farmers. And this is true whether they are Black, White, Brown, or Indigenous, male or female, gay or straight. We are in divisive times. The only people that benefit from this level of device is Divisiveness is the top 1%. The rest of us must work together to find our common ground and our common humanity. That's what a new deal that works for us looks like.
3: Thank you so much, Amanda. Now I'm going to pass it over to Angie. Angie, take it away.
6: Thanks, Caitlin. You know, what I know to be true is that the people of Appalachia are hard workers and we've found deep purpose and meaning in powering America with the coal we mined, feeding the nation with the food grown on our farms and supplying the lumber to build homes and communities hundreds of miles from our own. Though for too long, corporations have used our resources for their own profits while damaging our health and environment. With Appalachia's natural assets, we have all the tools to provide great jobs for our people while doing our part to create a healthier future for our children by addressing the climate crisis. We know that it's not going to be enough simply to reduce emissions. To really make a difference, we must pull carbon from the atmosphere to be able to meet the net zero emission goals by 2050. Our forested landscapes can capture and store vast amounts of carbon. Federal funding could be used to put people to work in climate smart forestry. People can also go to work restoring wetlands and floodplains, protecting their neighbors from future floods, saving lives and money in the long run. Policymakers can help put more people to work now, repairing lands and waters degraded by mining. Restoration jobs can support up to 39 jobs per million dollars invested compared with only five jobs supported per million invested in the oil and gas industry. Reclamation jobs can go directly to out of work miners to do backfilling, regrading, and revegetation. We can reclaim abandoned mine lands for reuse or other community goals, such as new outdoor recreation opportunities that increase tourism. And heck, we're within 500 miles of 60% of this nation's population a population that is seeking outdoor spaces as a safer way to recreate and enjoy a vacation in the context of a a pandemic. Public investments in restoration, recreation, and resilience create good-paying jobs more quickly than many other alternatives, 15 to 33 jobs per million invested, because most of those funds go to labor rather than materials. Our federal leaders can create a 21st century civilian conservation corps to put our young people to work, restore our natural places and fix crumbling recreational infrastructure. And members of Congress are signaling that the time is indeed the act is now. The Moving Forward Act, HR2 recently passed the house and like our plan, it links economic stimulus, community resilience and climate pollution reduction. It directs large-scale public resources to create jobs in natural infrastructure, clean water, and ecosystem rest- restoration. So we're calling on all of our leaders to embrace the ima- Reimagine Appalachia policy framework to not just help our region restart its economy, but also to increase our strength and resilience, resilience as a nation.
3: Thank you, Angie. All right, over to Quentin.
7: Thank you. So all across the United States, including here in Appalachia, people are realizing that healthy and vibrant communities are ones where everyone, no matter what they look like, has clean air to breathe and clean water to drink, and where everyone can walk down the street without fear of being targeted by law enforcement because of their race. We now more clearly understand the challenges we face are strongly connected, and we're having daily conversations about how we can do better and what it will take to correct the centuries' worth of damage done to our health and well-being by a handful of wealthy and powerful interests. But because those problems are so closely tied, we won't make meaningful progress if we keep working on these issues in isolation. Reimagine Appalachia represents a framework of structural change. It is an opportunity to make communities in our region whole again, or in some cases, make them whole for the very first time. Communities have been devastated by corporations that have polluting our air and water, holding down our wages, and pushing for tough-on-crime laws that pack our prisons. Those at the forefront of conversation today, activists and academics have argued for decades that mass incarceration and labor are linked. The stats for mass incarceration are grim. The United States holds nearly 25% of the world's prisoners, despite having less than 5% of the world's populations. And we know that black and brown communities suffer the heaviest impacts. But Appalachia is not immune. In West Virginia, for example, estimated that more than one third of adults have an arrest or criminal conviction. And we also know that challenges don't disappear for individuals once they exit the prison gates. The unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated people is 27%, and they face barriers to accessing affordable housing, health care, and transportation. A federal jobs program envisioned by Reimagine Appalachia can solve the climate crisis while healing communities and employing people who have been kept in the margins for too long. Now, if public investment in our region sounds like a new idea, it shouldn't. Jails and state and federal prisons have been thrown up at a rapid pace in Appalachia, often built on or near coal mines that communities once depended on for employment. But instead of building prisons, members of Reimagine Appalachia are demanding public investments for sustainable projects projects that should give priority to women, Black and brown workers, formerly incarcerated, and other marginalized populations. These programs and living wage jobs will benefit all our neighbors, finally address disparities, and ensure a better, sustainable future for our region.
3: Thank you so
2: much, Quentin. Okay, Steve, you are next. Thanks, Caitlin. As Angie said, the people of Appalachia have a great work ethic. They expect to be paid fairly and to be protected and respected on the job. But for the past 40 years, almost none of the benefits of economic growth have been shared with working people in our region. Corporations and the politicians that they control have held wages down for Appalachians white, black, or brown in small towns, backwoods, and cities. The previous four decades from the late 1930s to the late 1970s proved that shared prosperity in our region and country are possible. In those four decades, the average income of the bottom 90% in our four states tripled or quadrupled pause for a second and digest that last second, that last sentence, a tripling or quadrupling of uh, living standards in a 40 year period. For the past 40 years, however, average incomes for the uh, bottom 90% for the vast majority have stagnated or declined in our region. No wonder many people are angry or apathetic about politics and reject the idea that politicians might really represent, we the people. Enacting the policies in our blueprint would create hundreds of thousands of jobs, a new period of shared prosperity, and feed the hunger for hope, opportunity, and a chance to contribute that exists among the people of our region. Unlike the post New Deal economy, our framework would also deliver prosperity that includes everybody no matter the color of their skin or the size of their bank account. It would do this, for example, in these three ways, with policies that ensure public investment and climate response create good jobs. By strengthening workers' freedom to form unions in all sectors so that essential workers on which we all depend on others can support their families and enjoy dignity on the job. And by investing in the bottom-up local ownership and wealth creation movement in our region. Our last speaker will address the most important issue, how we come together to take action that will create a new deal that works for us.
3: Thank you so much, Steve. Okay, and closing us out for our program is Ashley Spaulding. Take it away, Ashley. Great. Great. Thank you, good morning. Um,
8: in addition to the federal stimulus money our states need right now to weather the current economic crisis. We also need investments to jumpstart the economy for the long term, curb climate change, and advance racial justice. This is particularly true for Appalachia, which has long provided the raw material for the prosperity of the nation, while being left with high rates of poverty, unemployment, and low wages. This has to change. People in the region have the skills, know-how, and ingenuity to build a 21st century Appalachia with jobs with good wages and benefits that help protect the environment and the health of the people who live in it. But we cannot do it without significant federal resources, resources that are deserved. Whether it's national climate change legislation, the Green New Deal, or some other form of federal economic stimulus, Appalachia must receive its fair share of the resources. We call on federal policymakers and presidential candidates to do the right thing and create a new deal that works for us in the Ohio River Valley of Appalachia.
3: Thank you so much, Ashley. So that is our program. So now I'd like to open it up to members of the press. If you have a question, simply raise your hand and I will unmute you or you can type it into the Q&A. Ah, okay, we have a question here from Kathy. Okay, Kathy, from Midwest Energy News, the floor is yours.
8: Yes, I should be unmuted. Thank you. Um, Yes, so Hannah was mentioning that uh, buy-in is needed from the people of Appalachia. And I'm wondering, you know, are there any particular contacts, individuals, groups with all whom you've been involved that do include you know, people who perhaps have been laid off from coal mining jobs or who did some work on drilling, you know, fracked wells, but now are, are out of work. Um, you know, are I guess that's what I'm asking is what kind of input have you had from some of those people or groups and who might some of them be? I think that's a really good question because
4: so often the, in these sort of let's figure out what's the right way to handle or to help out Appalachia during this time of transition. A lot of times those folks aren't really um, at the forefront of the conversation uh, for lots of reasons. So, uh, you know, I'm in a organization in Ohio. Uh, I live in Columbus. We cover statewide. So we write about policies that affect Cleveland and uh, Lucasville, right? So we have a commitment to talking about policies that's really going to build an Ohio economy that works for everybody that's here in Ohio. And, you know, I grew up though in Knott County, Kentucky. My dad uh, worked on a Martin County coal strip mine until he was injured uh, and could no longer work, which is the story of so many people uh, who I grew up with. And so where are folks, where are the working people of Appalachia, where's their inroads to this process has been something that's been at the forefront of our minds in this process. And we have, we have had lots of opportunities and made real strides in trying to collect those voices, provide listening session opportunities. Uh, We had a convening early on in this discussion and in trying to figure out what kind of framework and issues folks are dealing with. So that's sort of central to what we're trying to do. Um, and I think that that's why we call it a framework or a conversation, because this is, this is a starting point. Um, and ideally this is a new way to talk about this transition um, that gets us out of those old like habits of thinking, well, you know, this is policy coming in from the coast or, This is policy that's just being applied to people in Appalachia. And instead, we're trying to create some frameworks, some structure, some on-ramps for people to have a conversation about policies that might affect them, that might make their life better.
5: I'll just add one real specific quick thought. And that is we are working closely with a number of labor leaders um, to get their input, people that represent their members, many of whom have been laid off from coal jobs, are are doing work now uh, in oil and ga- in the oil and gas industry. And um, we had a specific listening session um, where we had roughly thirty different um, union leaders uh, in attendance, so that we could get their input and their thoughts. And- and we will continue continue those converse, kinds of conversations.
3: Thank you, thank you, everyone. And I had a quick question um, follow up on that. So, how is the coalition planning to engage people? We've rolled out the blueprint. What's
7: next? Uh, I can take a stab at that. So this is Quentin King. Um, so I, you know, we we held three listening sessions last month in June. And before that, we know we've been in constant contact communication with groups all around the region. Um, So going forward, we're going to be having a series of town halls throughout the summer. Um, And these will have specific topics. And for example, next week, we're having a town hall uh, on Wednesday night, and that will be focused on barriers to uh, barriers after reentry. So people who are returning from from incarceration and we'll, we will uh, be you know, posting, the, we'll, well, a calendar, so we'll be posting those throughout the summer.
3: Thank you, Quentin. Do we have any other questions from um, members of the media? Okay, well, I have a question also. Um, we have, in the news recently, um, Vice President and presidential candidate Joe Biden released his climate plan. And um, how does the work that our coalition is doing fit into what's being debated during the election and the plans that we've seen put forward by Vice President Biden or by President Trump? Um, And what would you like to see included in both of their plans and their platforms?
2: Thanks very much Caitlin. So we've been heartened uh, by the debates in DC, whether it's the Biden clean energy plan or the Biden Sanders unity plan or even some specific pieces of legislation that are beginning to move or in the drafting stages in terms of the Biden plan, for example. um, It's got um, language about the strings that have to be connected to climate investment to create good jobs for all. Um, it's got a uh, uh, very strong language around clean manufacturing, you know, we'll be wanting to weigh in and talk about the importance of this region, for example, becoming a major player in electrical vehicle production and uh, supplying parts for electric vehicles because that's been, a, uh, uh, auto parts have been a key part of the Ohio economy with the internal combustion engine so there's going to be a hole there that needs to be filled with new clean manufacturing jobs. Uh, Amanda also talked about uh, we think our region's well positioned to lead in plastics alternatives. The Biden plan also talks about uh, securing benefits that coal miners and their families have earned, talks about more resources for coal and power plant communities. Again we think more resources for this region as a whole should be part of the conversation Um, And then last, there's a particular version of a job creation plan um, around um, things like planting trees and uh, uh, cleaning up the damage from the last century. Um, We uh, will be um, encouraging the Biden folks to uh, bring back the civilian conservation corps. And we're very pleased that already in Pennsylvania, we've been working with um, the staff of Senator Bob Casey who's developing a specific proposal around the Civilian Conservation Corps. Just to put the potential of that in terms of uh, of job creation in context, in the 1930s for about a decade, the first CCC employed 3 million people total over that period. Uh, The equivalent to that today would be 10 million people. And we have that much work that needs to be done and a disproportionate share of that work needs to be done in our region cleaning things up and also um, increasing carbon absorption.
3: Thank you, Steve. We also have a couple of questions that came in from the press. Um, See, we have here from Paul um, from the Pittsburgh Business Times. There's a lot of investment that has either happened or will with the plastics industry. With the tax breaks and the like from the states for the shell cracker in Beaver or the PTT cracker in Belmont County. These are also supported by labor. How are you planning to change the conversation with these? And also the prospect of Appalachia becoming a plastic center.
2: So I think our perspective, I mean, um, we don't uh, take a position on petrochemical, don't take a position on fracking in our agenda. Uh, We're all about the jobs that we think um, the climate response we need, uh, all about the jobs that could be created um, uh, by that, um, you know we looking um, from uh, at those industries. I mean, I think there are some real questions about the financial viability of fracking and petro going forward. And it's also true that if you look at the absolute number of jobs that are created by those industries, it's pretty small. So the bottom line is, we think that the the right bet for the region from an economic point of view leaving aside the environmental issues the right bet for the region uh, and for really restoring the middle class is to uh, get out front of the climate response debate and um, you know that's really the diverse sustainable um, broadly shared future that our region needs and i'll
5: just add a thought and the region the, re- the reason um, there's so much focus on making Appalachia the hub for petrochemicals is that they are relatively good paying jobs. But if we can create equivalent jobs that are also better you know, for our health and the environment, uh, then it's going to make sense to do so. And I think we've laid out a plan that can accomplish that.
3: I have one last question, That um, something I think would be good to cover. We have had a major federal relief package to respond to the COVID crisis and the recession it's causing. And there's another one that's being debated right now. What, if anything, is included in those packages that Goes along with what we are talking about here with our blueprint, and are there gaps that you would like to see filled in?
6: Well, I, I can start because in my comments I mentioned HR two as an example of something that has passed the House and and aligns quite a bit with with our Reimagine Appalachia framework. I mean, a few examples of what I've seen in in that large package is an eight billion dollar investment in clean water uh, state revolving fund. So you know, West Virginia is a place that desperately needs upgrades in water infrastructure just to deliver and provide safe drinking water to many communities that don't, that are still 17 years into a boil water advisory. So, that kind of investment, again, keeps us safe and also puts people to work. Um, also, in that package is the Reclaim Act and a uh, reauthorization of the Abandoned um, Mine Land Trust Fund two important mechanisms to what I mentioned earlier, to fund the jobs that will do the reclamation of our degraded land and waters. And there's also um, some uh, authorization of looking at the ecosystem restoration and recovering wildlife populations in, in ways that, that need to happen um, while a- addressing the, the climate crisis. So all of those kind of natural infrastructure investments I talked about.
3: Great. I can close up our program today. It has been so great to be with all of you, to launch this exciting policy blueprint. We are really looking, for, looking forward to continuing the process, to keep engaging the community, because we're doing vital work that could really transform this region. And we are so excited to have the privilege to be doing this work.
0: You've been listening to a July 21st press conference held to release the Reimagine Appalachia Investment Plan that calls for a new deal that works for all of us. You can follow Reimagine Appalachia on Facebook and download the blueprint at reimagineappalachia.org. This story and others about revitalizing our Appalachian economy and renewing our communities are online at www makingconnectionsnews.org. I'm your host Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening to WMMT Real People Radio.